0: More than ever, it seems we are constantly bombarded, sometimes even drawn in, by the never-ending conflict and despair towards the future. As followers of Jesus, we press through the difficulties because there is a promise and a hope for the future. But what about those who don't know that hope? How can we live out the promise of the coming kingdom in our present moment with those around us? Good morning. How's everyone doing? Great. Okay, I heard some greats. That's well done. Well, hey, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Thanks again for joining us at the Grace Church. At the Grace Church, at the Medina's campus of Grace Church, and uh, I'm Steve, and that's what you get. So hey, um, I'm one of the pastors here. I help out with Give It Away. It's how we share the story and message of Jesus to our community and to our world. And so that's the things that I'm about. And I'm also about this uh, series. It's pretty cool. Okay, I like it. We're digging into uh, First Thessalonians. It's this New Testament letter that we're digging into. And one of our goals in doing that is to continually become familiar with the Bible, uh, to learn what God is doing, what He has been doing, and what He's doing to, for us today. And and so this is a letter that we get to read together that was written a long time ago, um, but it could be for us today too. And so we get to read that together. In which, by the way, we call it the Word of God because it's this Word that speaks to us. And so we get to see the Word of God as we read, speak to us and speak for itself and teach us, which is really cool. So whenever we read God's Word, we know that it's good for teaching, for correcting, and for training us up to be more like Jesus. So that's pretty awesome. And so with that in mind, we have provided a bit of a roadmap for what we're doing with this series, okay? Some clarity around this series moving forward. And something that we are seeing is this idea of kingdom living in the present. Kingdom living in the present. What's cool about First Thessalonians is that almost every chapter, pretty much you see this idea of like living for Jesus today and the view of Jesus is actually coming back. Okay, so those two things are very much present in every chapter of this letter, and we're going through each chapter for five weeks, because there's five chapters. So there we go. And last week, we read this backstory. So if you weren't with us last week, no worries, you can check it out. But we read this backstory that you can see in Acts 17. And so Acts 17 shows us that Thessalonica was this popular port city full of trade, politics, social and cultural innovation, and things like that. And you have this, these people, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they were ran out of town for Claiming the gospel, and they write this letter to a church that was formed around their procl- proclamation of the gospel. And which is what? The gospel is basically, it's the good news. That Jesus is the king, these are the things that they were saying, that Jesus is the king, he is the Messiah, and that all that would believe in him, in Jesus, would get to know God. would all believe that Jesus actually came, died, rose again, that they would be connecting with God, who, is, uh, who eventually will come back for his kingdom to reign and to rule for all time. All right, And so they were proclaiming that message in the midst of a culture that had a lot of gods, but it wasn't cool to say that there was one God, and especially a God that was king. Okay, So that created a lot of tension, and so they're writing this letter of encouragement to this church. And to help us grasp chapter 1 and what it was saying last week, if you were here, we talked about these two things, imitating and waiting. Okay, imitating and waiting. So when we look at the example of this church in Thessalonica, um, we we are told that this is a model church to model after. So as a church like this and as a disciple of Jesus, these are people that should be modeled after that we should imitate their way of how they were following Jesus, okay? So imitating. And so we talked about how that would—and I gave you like 20 points on that. I'm sorry. But there we go. We, you could take pictures of stuff as I go along, but I tend to give a lot, okay? And so we had like 20 points. And then we talked about waiting. And we said this question, when was the last time that you ever thought about the question or thought about the idea of how well are you waiting for Jesus' return, Okay, so if you've never thought about that before, then maybe you missed last week because we talked about it. But that was the question we asked. How well are we waiting for Jesus' return? Have we ever thought about that before? All right, so the tricky thing about sermons like this, okay, let's just be honest. Every weekend, what do we do? We give you a newish message and something new to do about it, okay? And let's be honest, you cannot form habits in one week. So here's my encouragement. Uh, my encouragement is to write this down, okay? Maybe you have in those nifty uh, ESV scripture journals, write these things down. Maybe you wrote them down last week, or just any kind of piece of paper, just write them down and use this for the weeks to come as we go through 1 Thessalonians, because we're going to go through a whole new set of things again this weekend. And I'll just Give you those things right up front. Today, I think what the Spirit, at, at the very least, is kind of showing us in chapter two is this idea of serving and presenting. Serving and presenting. So it's, if it's helpful for you, write those two things down. We'll talk about those towards the end, and that's what we're going to see through this passage. So, if you have a Bible, let's go there. Let's go to Second, uh, Thessalonians chapter two. Uh, Grace already read it for us, but we're going to go back through it, kind of verse by verse. And so we are in First Thessalonians chapter two. As you're getting there, what you might notice is that there's actually like this shift in this letter. So chapter 1, Paul and others are writing directly to the church, to the people of the church in Thessalonica and what they were doing, okay? And how well they were a model church. And then the focus shifts a little bit in chapter 2 to now seeing, okay, what did Paul, Silas and Timothy, these church leaders do? They're almost giving a defense of their leadership and what they did and how they were a model were model messengers to the churches, okay? So that's what we kind of see. So let's just go for it again here. Chapter two, we're gonna go through verses one through three and talk about it. So, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Okay, so we're gonna do something real quick called mirror reading. Have you heard of that before? If not, mirror reading just means that you are trying to reconstruct the situation. So we're gonna look at the situation. We're gonna look at what Paul and these guys are saying. We're gonna kind of reconstruct the situation. So we're given some insights into what kind of pushback the community, mostly outside of the church, was giving to the church and especially to the church leaders. So looking at what Paul said, we can conclude what the pushbacks were. For example, he said, hey, guys, our visit to you was not without results, okay? There must have been accusations that they were doing something wrong, that what they were trying to do wasn't working, which is really interesting because in Acts 17, it said, these people are turning the world upside down, okay? That's literally what they said in Acts 17. And they're literally seeing a lot of Jewish people come to know Jesus. They're seeing a lot of uh, Greeks come to know Jesus, and so there was these accusations that what they're doing was that with the result, without results. And Paul's like, we, it, there, there was results. People come to know Jesus. People are kicking us out of town because we're running, uh, we're, we're proclaiming this gospel that is contrary to everything in this culture, and, and we're proclaiming that. And it's turning the world upside down for people. There were results. And then he says this, that, we previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. he was in jail right before coming to this new spot, and so we talked last week about how Paul and his guys they would go to a city, they would proclaim the gospel, there would be opposition, they would get kicked out, and they would go and do it again boldly and so he said that they were treated, treated outrageously in that area and so Paul and the others they were all of Jewish ethnicity, and Paul was also a Roman citizen. And so that means that he would have had certain rights, even ones that Jewish citizens didn't have. And something to know or remember about Paul is that before he came to know Jesus, his name was Saul. He was a Jewish leader. He was a prominent Roman citizen and a persecutor of Christians and of the church. Yet, here we're seeing that Paul was stripped of all of that, stripped of his rights, and he was mocked by the Jewish community. And so he said, we were treated outrageously because of that. And then he goes about these accusations. He says, yeah, by the way, our appeal, our gospel that we made, it didn't come from error or impure motives or trying to trick you. These accusations would have been uh, actually very plausible in this popular port city in Thessalonica because traveling con artists would go, would roll through um, nonstop with their charisma, armed with a great story to tell and to sell and to trade for selfish gain. Okay, and I don't know why, but for some reason, the image that came immediately in my head as I was studying this was uh, (laughs) these con men from the original 1977 Pete's Dragon. Anybody? You remember watching this? Okay, I this side for sure. Okay, so is it Dr. Terminus or something or Hoagie? These are the guys. They look really sketchy, right? And so these are the guys. And so I'm wondering like, this is probably what they thought of Paul and the guys, right? They're like, these are these guys, okay? Running around town, trying to sell the new thing and they're just gonna take our money and leave, okay? And so if you can imagine, That's probably, I don't know. That's probably what they're thinking. I don't know. Um, So if you haven't seen that movie, I don't know. It's on Disney Plus. It's pretty cool. So um, I remember, side note, since we're talking about it, I remember um, when my son Emery first saw this when he was younger, um, (laughs) for some reason, like the main thing that he got from this movie was this little song that this guy uh, was singing. And so he would go around and sing in the song and he would say, money, money by the pound. And I was like, dude people are going to think, what are you letting your kid watch? Like, this is so weird. Please stop saying that. Uh, We're not those people. Okay, so that's what's happening. Now that you have that image in your head, we should move on, okay? But this was far from what Paul and his team were up to, okay? They weren't these new, new teachers coming in trying to profit off the gospel. The gospel message was vastly different than what they experienced in this time. There was no error, okay? Jesus really was around. He really did die. People really saw these things take place. They really saw Jesus raised from the dead, actually, Okay, And so their motives, their motives, they seemed right. I mean, gosh, you, you got to have some pure motives. If you're able to go get put in jail and then uh, get, escape from that area, go again to a place and do it all again with boldness, they, they must have had pure motives. They were all for the sake of others so that others would know and come to know the one true God. And they even forfeited their rights in doing it. And there was no trickery. There wasn't any kind of like trying to fake death or give a phony message. This was legit. People legit saw these things take place. And this is far from what anyone proclaiming the gospel today should be like. Far from what anyone should be like. See, it's really unfortunate that when you see churches or, or celebrity Christians with seemingly impure motives based on their lavish lifestyle, it's really sad when we see that kind of stuff. And the world loves to point that kind of stuff out. So you get shows like, and I haven't seen it, I heard about it from a friend, The Righteous Gemstones, okay? I did watch the trailer, I don't recommend it. But I guess it's a, a show on HBO that has that common, that, it's not an uncommon narrative that we see that in our culture or even in the early church of people profiting off the gospel. Selfish gain in a vocation that should be anything but selfish. It should be for the benefit of others. And so one of the ways that you can know that a church or somebody proclaiming the gospel is legit is if they declare it boldly, even in the face of strong opposition, with the only thing to gain being the joy of just one more person, Coming to know Jesus and entering into the kingdom of God—that is the only thing to gain. And so Paul will go on, and the guys will go on. And they'll say this: No, no, no. On the contrary, on the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know, we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Okay, some things to point out here. This idea of being entrusted with the gospel, okay? These weren't some random people doing random things like the con men going in and out of town. Paul is reminding them of their, what we call apostleship, okay? Meaning that they have already been approved by God and approved by God's church to be leaders in the church and to be entrusted with this message that they would proclaim to others. Okay, not only are they approved, by, but they are entrusted. They are entrusted to take that message and to give that to others, just like Jesus called them to, okay? To give the story and message of Jesus to everyone. So, taking us outside of that letter for a second, a question that I even ask myself is Is it just approved pastors and church leaders that are entrusted with the gospel? Is it just those people? Well, look at the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, okay, calling to do that. Look at scriptures like 2 Corinthians, where we see that all followers of Jesus, all disciples of Jesus are ambassadors for Jesus. And that would be including sharing his story and message. There is a bit of uh, entrustment in that as a follower of Jesus. And so for us, how serious are we taking up that calling, to allow ourselves to be entrusted with sharing the gospel. Have we viewed it that way ever? With boldness, to share the same message that Jesus and many others have died for, have given their lives for, so that even one other person would come to know Jesus and be entered into his kingdom. And he goes on to say, this was not something that was man-pleasing, okay? We did not, we're not trying to please people. We're trying to please God. We didn't put a mask to cover up any kind of greed. And we didn't want the praise for people. We weren't looking for that. And here's perhaps why the gospel message might take some entrusting. It's this idea of people pleasing. We don't get the impression that Paul and others were running around being jerks to people, okay? But and here the defense is that Jesus was. And is and always will be priority, even if it means that we don't please somebody, even if it means that it creates friction with another person. If we're set out to please anybody at all, it is and it was Jesus. It was Jesus. Pleasing God means that we don't proclaim the gospel by way of flattery, by way of flattery. There should be encouragement for sure, but not flattery. See, encouragement is real and authentic where flattery may be true and it may not be true. It's exaggeration for the sake of getting something in return. And that's not the way of Jesus. That wasn't the way of Paul or this church. They weren't trying to get anything in return. They were giving themselves over to others for the message. There's a recent article I read from a ministry called Exponential. They had a brief interview with this guy, this pastor and author named John Mark Comer. I might have mentioned him before. Um, They asked him a question that I think his response was really interesting. And it took me a few weeks to like really process it. But they asked him this question, what do you think that it looks like to be bold in evangelism? And John Mark Comrie says, I think it means to not compromise your ethical convictions and theological convictions in the name of niceness, <laughs> in the name of niceness. I thought that was so interesting. This might actually, I don't know, this might be the key to something as it pertains to pleasing God and not man. See, as we try to become more like Jesus and practice his ways and share that with others, could we actually be compromising at times for the sake of niceness for the sake of niceness. Now, to be clear, I don't think that that is a direct conclusion for every single person. Some of us, myself including, we ought to work on our niceness, okay? You know who you are, myself including, okay? But for others, we can easily get into the people-pleasing mentality for the sake of niceness and keeping a relationship. Should we spend the time to build relationships and ultimately be nice to others? Yeah, absolutely but not for the sake of compromising on modeling the way of Jesus in real life and proclaiming the true gospel, both in grace and in truth. And I personally, I've had a number of personal examples in this area. There have been times where I let myself join in on things that others were doing for the sake of niceness, as a way of hopefully eventually sharing the gospel with maybe a group of people. And I ended up compromising on my ethical convictions. Uh, there have been times where I omitted part of the gospel narrative because I knew that it would hurt someone's feelings in this situation. And I compromised on, on theological convictions. Theology, by the way, theological convictions, that's just what we view and what we know and how we study about God and his things. So sure, there's going to be times of where we need to exercise discernment and wisdom and some social awareness, But honestly, in most of those times, I was just being ethically and theologically inconsistent for the sake of being nice. I've seen this play out in my life. And maybe you've seen that play out in your life as well for the sake of niceness. So interesting. Next, uh, Paul goes on. Paul and his guys go on and we'll actually get some insights on the behaviors and characteristics of the early disciples and apostles and how they chose to interact with others. So let's check this out. Continuing verse 7 uh, to 12. So it goes on to say, Instead, we were like children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we love you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. All right, so some interesting things to note here. There are heated debates all around us on what's going on this passage as it deals with like gender roles and things like that. So in some ways, it wasn't actually much different in this day and in this time as it is today. Here, what we see is kind of we see some clear God-given attributes, behaviors and characteristics seen about a mother and a father, a man and a woman. And so first, though, they describe like they were being like children, okay? They were like young children among you. Or if you do have the ESV, it might translate, we were gentle among you. We were gentle among you. So here's what's interesting. As a Roman citizen in Greco-Roman world, this would have been a humiliating gesture about oneself. In this culture, especially for men, you emphasize strength and you emphasize dominance, not meekness or humility or gentleness or things like that. And so this became a distinct way of interacting with others in community that was compelling to the recipients of those who that received that love and that was scoffed by others. That was scoffed at by others because that's just not the way that men work in that community. And then to compare yourself to a nursing mother who cares for their children, we cared for you that same way. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. No way. Okay. So that was reserved for the private and domestic role of a woman. No man would relate themselves to a woman or their role, especially in this way. Yet Paul, he does. He says that we became like nurturers for you in this community. We became that for you. We applied that attribute for you to love you. He also talks about his vocation, which I didn't put in yellow. So there we go. Um, He talks about his vocation and he talks about how we did not mask up or cover up this greed that uh, is prominent in the traveling con men. Okay, he says that, man, we were, uh, just some context, Paul was making tents, selling tents in the marketplace, not only to probably reach more people and build relationships with people, but so that he wouldn't be accused of being the traveling con men, trying to gain profit and things like that. And so even though, They were likely accused of like, uh, hey, why are you doing that? Isn't your profession going and preaching the gospel? Shouldn't you be making money off of that? They were probably likely um, viewed as illegitimate because they're not receiving pay for their their ministry, pay for their ministry. And at the same time, they were like probably made fun of because they're like making tents, like what you can't do better at being a preacher that you say you are. And so there's this interesting dynamic here of even though Paul was doing this, giving his life to this work, he's like, I don't wanna be a burden to you. I'm not trying to mask up any greed. By the way, we sold tents so that we wouldn't be a burden to you, okay? Okay. And then finally, he compares himself to a father. He says, as a father deals with his own children, how do they deal with their children? Encouraging, comforting, urging, urging to live lives worthy of God. All right, so this would have been viewed as probably soft fathering in the Greco-Roman culture. A father would be authoritarian in their control of their kids and their role of father. Unfortunately, we have few good examples of fatherhood today, but at the very minimum, A godly father is one that encourages, comforts, urges to live in a manner ultimately worthy of God. That is minimum. And he said, we applied that attribute to you because we loved you so much. Now, this sermon, this letter isn't meant to be a theology on gender roles or anything like that, but we can't ignore the text. It's right there, after all. The point is that this community of Jesus followers took on characteristics and behaviors necessary for loving one another the way that Jesus did, that Jesus would not conforming to the cultural patterns of gender roles or society's views on whatever. Instead, being like Jesus to others in ways that were necessary for the people that they were loving and that they were serving. They became family. They became fatherly. They became motherly to others. Imagine for us, imagine if we humbled ourselves and were vulnerable enough to do the same despite the seemingly always changing views of our world, that we would apply those attributes to people that we are loving and that we are serving. And then he goes on and he says, finishing up here in verse 13 to 16, he says, and, and he kind of has a hard transition here. He just says, okay, enough with that analogy. And we also thank God continually because... When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Okay despite all the pushbacks and accusations that these leaders and this church was receiving, they are thankful for something. They are thankful that the true gospel, the very words of God were received. Not just some charismatic teacher's words, but the actual words of God. And so for us, how do we view the Bible that we hold in our hands or that we look at on our screens? What more can we present to each other and to others? We have the very word or words of God available to us and to proclaim to others. This is the source of power. We talked about last week, the source of power led by the Holy Spirit in our lives to bring to other people. It's the word. It's the word. It's not some charismatic teaching, nothing like that. It's not from flattery. It's the word of God. Is it at work in you? Is it at work in you who believe? And so they relate this to the idea of suffering. They relate this to the suffering that the churches received in imitating the Word of God. The encouragement here is that doing the work of God, uh, following the way of Jesus, often means and comes with resistance and tension. And it does not mean that something's wrong or that God is not working in your life. Uh, You'll find that when you receive God's Word and when you start getting into God's Word for real and seeing it at work in your life, things sometimes become difficult. I've talked to many people about this over the years. When they start really digging into the Word, really getting into God's Word, maybe it's I I now spend 15 or 20 minutes daily in the Word of God, things like that, and therefore they see God working in their life more, that is both the most rewarding thing that they've ever experienced and the most difficult. What happens is that you see the Spirit clearly working in your life, but you also see opposition working in your life more and more as well. And there's a really harsh word that Paul and the guys kind of say here in those that would oppose the gospel message and oppose the way of Jesus. And unfortunately, this passage, honestly, in that way, has been used in history to justify genocide of Jews and crusades of hate and anger towards those that oppose God and are hostile to those that follow Jesus. And this is not what the writers are trying to communicate at all, that we should be hostile to those that are hostile to us. Check this out, this idea of the wrath of God become, coming upon them at last. This idea that the wrath of God has come upon them is actually a phrase that communicates that God's wrath is coming upon those that are and will be hostile against God and his people. This is both specific to the people that they were dealing with and formid- and informative to those that would follow It's both a contextual result of the suffering of the Thessalonians and a forward-thinking view of what is to come for those that oppose the gospel message. The reality is that all who and have and will experience what can oftentimes feel like God's plan going wrong in our life will be vindicated not by our efforts or our hostility towards others, but by God's vindication and His wrath and His returning. So for the disciples of Jesus, this should not bring us to raise a fist at others in victory and say, yeah, you're going to get what comes to you. It shouldn't be that way at all. It should leave us in tears and with open arms to say to those that would oppose us or the gospel or the way of Jesus and say, you too can experience this love. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to serve you and to present to you with the full gospel, even if you're hostile towards me and towards the whole thing so when we see our friends, our family, or culture, whatever you want to call it in general, reject the word of God and the person of Jesus, we ought to focus on how to better serve and present the gospel with our lives even more for the sake of others. And so how, are we, how can we do that? And how, what are some ways that we can try to do that? Well, I'm going to give you some more bullet points again this week, okay? I told you that we would kind of end up talking about serving And presenting, serving and presenting. So I think there's three bullet points, only three bullet points in each of these categories this week. But that first part here, serving... Something that we see in this letter is how Christians are to live to serve others. We kind of see model messengers of the gospel through Paul, Silas, and Timothy and how they served their community, how they served others in the church. So for us, what does it look like to have a lifestyle of serving others in Jesus? How do we go about serving others? Well, this is just all from what we just read. It looks like in the scriptures here in chapter two, that that looks like sharing the gospel and our lives, sharing the gospel and our lives. Are you willing to serve people with your actual life? Are you willing to do that? This is more than just showing up to a church once a week or life group once a week. Anybody can do that. Are you invested in the lives of others? Actually, for real. Are you letting others invest in your life? More than just uh, conversations about the weather and things like that. Do you know what's going in the lives of the people that you're around in your community? How do we do this? Okay, so we serve by sharing the gospel. We present the gospel to people, but we also present our lives. That was what modeled in this chapter. They shared not only the gospel, but their entire selves as well. Two, Having a mindset of pleasing God, not man. Okay, not becoming a people pleaser. Don't let your niceness, okay, to go back to that topic, your niceness, don't let your niceness diminish the gospel and God's word working in someone's life. If you are a people pleaser by nature, which most of us are, what shifts will we have to make toward pleasing God instead of man in a healthy way? What shifts are we gonna have to make so that we can serve others in that way? Um, I think the best way that we can serve others is by realizing that we're trying to please God and not trying to please others, not being people pleasers. And then lastly, becoming gentle, becoming caring, yet becoming urging to those around you. So what are your preconceived ideas and how to interact with others? Can those ideas be shifted towards something more characteristic of the person of Jesus instead? How do we do this? How do we become gentle? How do we become caring to put on those attributes that Paul said that we put on these attributes for people because this was the best way to serve that person in that time, all right? And then lastly, we'll talk about presenting. And I'll actually invite the band up so the band can come up and do their thing, but presenting. So similarly, how should we go about presenting the gospel to others? How should we go about that? Okay, we talked about serving. Now, how do we present the gospel? What do we see in this chapter? Well, sharing the gospel with boldness and pure motives. Okay, now I'm not sure that our motives will 100% be pure ever, probably. However, we can check them. We can check our motives. Usually, the more impure our motives are, the less we share the gospel anyways, especially with boldness. Or if we get boldness wrong, becoming hurtful towards others with more truth than grace, then we know that maybe our motives might be off. What is our motive in presenting the gospel? It's gotta be with boldness, we see that, and it's gotta be with pure motives as well. Next, letting your words and your life present the gospel. Not just the words, not just your life, but both of those things working together. It's a bit easier to say the right things and to think the right things, but to live that out can be way more challenging. Not that we're perfect, but that we are continually watching, does our life match the things that we're reading the things that we're saying that we're about, the person that we're saying we're putting our allegiance into. And then lastly, this one's interesting, presenting the gospel in its entirety. Why hold back? Is it fear? Is it rejection? Is it something else? We saw that these guys, they had no fear. I mean, I'm sure there were probably fearful moments, but they just pressed forward. They shared the gospel in their entirety, even if it meant they would go to jail again. And so do you avoid topics with certain people because you think you know how they will respond unfavorably? And I'm not saying we shouldn't have some social awareness, okay? I'm working on that too, okay? And so we have to have some social awareness with that. But I pray that we wouldn't water down the gospel. Give it in its entirety. Now, what is the gospel in its entirety? Well, I think we tend to look for a, 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 like a, a fancy phrase or a paragraph to like sum up. Maybe if we could just sum up the gospel in one or two sentences, then we can just give it in its entirety. I think the fact is that the gospel doesn't really allow for that. The gospel, as we see proclaimed by these guys, shows that it takes time. It takes time spending in the word, looking. If we're talking about the gospel in entirety, I think it's all of this. And that takes time in relationship, building with others. It takes sharing your life with others. It's going to take that to share the gospel in its entirety. Man, are you willing to do that for others? Are you willing to serve others in the ways that we see modeled by this church and these leaders? Are we we ready and willing to present the gospel in the ways that they did as well? We should pray about that. Jesus, you're so good. God, thank you that you give us this example through imperfect people, through imperfect churches, but churches that we are told are model churches to look after. And so, Lord, I pray that we do. I pray that we look at these churches and model ourselves after them. God, I pray that as we go through First Thessalonians as a church, that we would continue to go through it outside of this space, that we would grab those journals, whatever. It doesn't have to be those journals, but that we would get into your word with others with, in community, and figure out what this actually looks like in our life. God, for this chapter this week, it seems like your spirit is up to you showing us that, man, we can serve people in a certain way, despite maybe how we think we should serve people. We we can serve people the way that you serve people, Jesus. We can present the gospel that you would have us present the gospel, that we see Paul and these other guys presenting their gospel with their lives. Are we willing to do that? to share the gospel in its entirety in that way, with some social awareness, of course, with boundaries at times, of course. But God, I pray that we would be people that would be kingdom living in the present, that we would be people that look to your future coming back, your return, and allow that to uh, tell us how and show us how to live our life today for others, for the sake of your gospel, so that even one more person would come to know you and be entered into your kingdom.